Increasing gender equality and promoting women's economic empowerment in many countries are having an influence on where power resides and the way that money moves. Companies in the finance industry are paying attention and have started to design gender-focused products and tools, and organisations are becoming more gender-inclusive. This panel at the 2019 Australasian Aid Conference discussed the -the on-the-ground experience of using a gender lens in the impact investment ecosystem in Asia and the Pacific. I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting on the land of the Ngunnawal people and I would like to pay my respects to their elders past and present and extend those respects to any Indigenous people who are joining us here today. My name is Amy Haddad. I'm the Principal Sector Specialist for DFAT and the Head of DFAT's Gender Equality Branch. Uh, and it is my deep pleasure to be uh, hosting and facilitating this panel today of these amazing humans that we have here to talk to us about um, gender lens investing and how we can move capital to support gender equality uh, outcomes. Um, I will just very quickly introduce the panel to start with. Um, It'd be good if I was on the right page of my notes. I'm going to be really innovative today. So we have, I'm going to start with Joy. So down the end, we have Dr. Joy Anderson. Uh, Joy is a prominent national leader in the intersection of business and social change, whose insights and experience have helped shape hundreds of ventures, as well as the movements of impact investing and gender lens investing. Um, Next, we have James, who uh, currently serves as the Impact Investing Director of Investing in Women, which is a um, DFAT-sponsored program, um, working in Southeast Asia. James is working with impact investors and developing blended finance instruments to move capital with a gender lens to the region in support of women-owned and women-led small and medium enterprises. Uh, Next, we have uh, Sally Moyle, who I like to call the mother of gender lens investing in DFAT because she was instrumental in getting this program set up in the first place, and so I honour you. Thank you. Um, Sally was uh, formerly the principal gender specialist for DFAT and is now the, um, the chief executive of Care Australia. Next, we have Amanda Jap. Um, Amanda is the facility manager for Pacific Rise, which is another Australian government-funded initiative. Pacific Rise works with investors and financial intermediaries to partner with businesses in the Pacific to secure impact investment funding. And finally, we, but not least, we have Will. Um, Will is the design lead for Frontier Innovators and Incubators, an Australian government-funded initiative to develop infrastructure. I've got inverted commas in my notes, so I'm just going to give you them here. Um, for social entrepreneurs in the Asia-Pacific by directly training program managers, connecting intermediaries across the region to support each other and sharing global best practices. So each of everyone's going to get a chance to talk today, so you can ask them questions about, um, you know, why they volunteered to do this in the first place. I'm going to give you a really um, quick overview of how DFAT came to this. Um, uh, My notes say, Australia is a world leader in gender lens investing in our region and globally. And you won't often hear Australian bureaucrats say that they're the leader at something. Um, But Joy in particular has really encouraged us to say, actually, DFAT did this sneaky little thing and suddenly here we are kind of at the front of the field, particularly in our region. Um, And this came about, um, and again, you know, we need to acknowledge Sally's contribution here through the work we did through um, gender lens investing, through um, uh, investing in women. But we've all now, we've also now managed to roll out the concept of gender lens investing across all of DFAT's impact investment um, uh, programs within the department, and that means 100% of what we do on impact investing has a gender lens, which is pretty exciting. Um, I'm not going to answer the question, what the hell is gender lens investing, because I'm going to actually get Joy to do that. Um, But what we're going to do, we're going to be a little bit different here today. I'm going to do two things that might not ordinarily happen 
on a panel session. Firstly, I'd like to know who we have in the audience because it's been my experience that when we have these conversations about gender lens investing, there's generally a pretty mixed group of people and so everyone's coming from a different point of understanding. So we're going to a little bit of group participation. You won't have to talk to anyone. Don't be shy. So are there any investors in the room? Oh, excellent. Um, who, who's from the finance sector? It's okay. Um, <laughs> anyone managing super funds here or, or fundraisers? No? Okay. Um, academics. Who are the academics? Come on, don't be shy. There we go. Um, who's uh, engaged in private sector engagement? All right, it's a pretty good mix. Um, who do we have from the community sector and from NGOs? Yeah, that's what I thought would happen. Um, who's going to identify themselves as a gender specialist? Excellent. Um, and development practitioners, hands up. Great. <laughs> Okay, so this is, you, this is the inverse of what I usually see when we have this conversation. I'm usually talking to financiers who are going, so gender's good. Um, so this is good to know who's in the room. Now, the other thing we're going to do that's different um, from ordinary panels is I'm going to get you guys to ask some questions now and then we're going to use those to try and shape what the panel talks to uh, later. And my esteemed colleague, uh, Trisha, down the front here is going to be writing those down and passing them to me. Um, and a shout out to Trisha, who is actually the manager in DFAT of investing in women and um, is actually the, the powerhouse behind the operation. So, oh, so many people volunteering to write. <laughs> okay, excellent. Sally Moyle, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Who's got some just grounding questions they want to put up front in lights before we start the conversation to help shape it? Okay, there's a question. Well done. If I had chocolate frogs, I would hand them out. Um, oh, okay, we're going to go over here first. Yeah, thank you so much for this session. All my favourite people are there on the stage today. Uh, my question to the panel is that we have been uh, having these conversations around gender lens for almost a decade now. And uh, we have made some progress and we are now focusing on how do we have more gender lens focused funds across the globe. But what would, what would it take to shift the conversations from creating these new structures to mainstreaming gender across everything we do, across every program, every intervention, every investment which happen across the world because we are talking about 50% of the population across the world. Thank you. Excellent question. And there was the lady in the white jacket up here. Everyone says that. Okay. Um, thanks, Amy. Uh, my, mine is a very basic question. Will you, will you define right at the beginning as to what you mean by impact investment as well? Uh, because otherwise this becomes a really big conversation, and I think my, the previous speaker sort of alluded to that. Uh, so if you could define that before we go on. Thank you. And then there's two questions to your left there, Tricia. Thank you. I'm Veronique Salzer-Rosac from ADB, the Asian Development Bank. My question is, is in a way related to Joe's question about definition. Are you also going to be talking about shared value? And if yes, how do you dissociate the two? Or you know, do we talk about shared value in a different way as impact investment? What is the additionality? Hi, my name's Karen Docking from Cardno. Um, I'm interested in all of the discussion, which is why I'm here, but 
I'd like to just know something about how you, uh, what your lessons learnt in relation to monitoring and evaluating the, uh, both the short-term and the longer-term changes you want to see. And Tricia, down the front for gender balance, I have a gentleman wanting to ask a question. Right down the front, just over here, and then and then I think, and then I think we need to go to the other side of the room for like left right balance as well. Oh. <laughs> My question is also a definitional one about investment. I notice the language of investment is used for almost all foreign aid these days, um, and so my question is how do the two stories relate? And the second one is, uh, in my particular um, interest, is, is, is marginal communities and marginalised women and what they do at the very basic community level with their little market, and market stall and the like. And then over on this side. If everyone can hear me. Oh, okay. Oh, sorry, I should have said that. We're streaming this on the YouTubes, so um, if you have an objection to that, you should leave now. <laughs> um, my question, and I'm trying to relate gender to climate change in this issue, uh, within finance and investment, climate change has a number of innovative new instruments emerging, green bonds, blue bonds, etc. Do you see space in the gender field for similar or different innovative financial instruments emerging in the same way it did for the climate change field? Okay, I'm going to take one more question and then um, I'm going to put pressure on the panel to answer those questions. So, just here. So, a little bit different take on innovation. So, I wondered to hear what the panel thought about direct links between the innovation economy and investing with a gender lens. So can you just say that again? I didn't quite catch it. Links between the innovation economy. So, not innovative instruments, but like, uh, you know, and not scaling, because we all know that's loaded, but this question of how does gender lens investing link to um, help pushing the communities or states or countries towards more innovative economies? Okay, what time do we have? Excellent. Okay, I'm going to start with... Now, there will be more time for questions at the end. This is not your only chance. Um, so no pressure, Joy... But you're going to set us up for the conversation with a 10 to 15 minute world tour of gender lens investing. Um, if you can respond to some of those questions, great. Um, otherwise, you know, we'll leave it to the panel. And I'm getting a secret note here. Excellent. Uh, oh, great. Thank you. Joy, did you? Okay. Oh, brilliant. Um, well, it's great to be here. I'm going to move this away for just a second. Um, so my name is Joy Anderson. I, I, lead a, I lead a think tank out of the US uh, called Criterion Institute, but I spend an enormous amount of time in Australia because I believe that Australia, Australian government, particularly DFAT, is the global leader in sort of setting the standards for what governments are doing in gender-led investing. And I give speeches that say that all over the world, hence I just want the Australians to back me up from time to time <laughs> on that point. Um, and so part of the reason, so part of my journey into this is, while, while I was a high school teacher for my 20s, I never really thought I was going to do anything except social change. Um, I landed in finance, happenstance. Um, and turns out there's just a bunch of power 
that sits in these systems of finance where all the capital sits and they make decisions in all kinds of intriguing ways. So I had landed in a pension fund and was working on pension funds or superannuation funds. Um, and then I decided to launch a venture fund. Because um, why not? You know, it's a Tuesday. I've never had any actual, you know, significant amounts of money, um, but thought this was an innovate. It was the beginning of impact investing. It was before impact investing was impact investing. And again, there was this sort of gap of people having conversations. So I thought, why not? I know something about social change. Impact investing which is defined in many different ways, but I'll try to give a quick definition, was just starting, and I thought, cool, people trying to use finance to create social change, maybe I should show up for that. And so myself and a couple friends created a company called Good Capital. Good Capital was one of the first um, impact investing venture funds in the world. And um, so this would have been 10, 11 years ago. Um, so I went on from that to be the woman who's the head of a venture fund. If you know anything about finance, that's a very rare commodity. So I found myself on all kinds of panels because they needed to find a woman. Um, so a couple years after that, I was walking through the halls of SOCAP, the Social, Social Capital Markets Conference, which my partners had founded, so I should know the name of it. And um, I was walking with a very dear friend, Shari Barenbach, who ran the Calvert Investment Fund for a long time. And we noticed that one more time, there was innovation happening, but nobody was talking about gender. And probably even more importantly, nobody was talking about power. There was sort of a general sense that we were going to innovate our way to a new future, and structural inequities would just fall away and just disappear because we had the internet. Um, and I found myself profoundly disturbed by this. Um, and the, who had capital wasn't changing, the who was answering the questions, it was essentially the people who had discovered that the old math wasn't working had new math, but they were the same people as had done the last math. And so I remember being on a keynote at, at SOCAP at some point saying to the former managing director of JP Morgan, just because you found new math, you don't get to run it all again. And so out of those kinds of instincts, um, Criterion and about, you know, eventually 20, 30, now thousands of other organizations really started the field of gender lens investing. And to be clear, the gender lens investing was really, it is today as a field, just a reframe of efforts that come for hundreds of years before, right? It is not a new thing. It is not new activity. People were looking at women-led businesses. People were paying, a question, paying attention to diversity in corporations. People were looking at the impact of products and services on women and girls. This was not a brand new idea, but true to often in the women's movement and other movements, I don't think the women's movement has a claim to this only, we are dividing up into little silos and saying, no, clean cook stoves, no, women on boards, as if we should choose between those. So all we did in building this field was to create an umbrella 
so that in the context of finance, we could be having a conversation about gender and naming who is having a conversation about gender, which is, by the way, a conversation about all the sexes, all genders, right? It is not just about women. It is about all of the ways in which there are gendered power dynamics within the world. And so working to name that as a broader field so that we could have a real conversation about gender. So that's what I've spent the last 10 years of my life doing. Um, so gender lens investing as a definition, you could name it, you have two, two choices. Uh, you guys asked me to name impact investing. I believe that was a little bit of a political question. Um, I'll maybe not fall deeply into that trap. Um, I think impact investing has very different definitions depending on where you are geographically within the world. So in the US, it largely means um, private equity going to companies that are trying to create a, a social good. Um, but globally, and particularly in Asia, it means kind of all kinds of financing that are moving towards impact. I want to table the question of how broad the definition is and whether that's a problem, which came, seemed to be a couple themes. Maybe we can come back to that afterwards. Because um, I do think the question of should we narrow it or should we keep it broad is a, is a worthwhile debate. My core thing is I do not want gender lens investing to be an issue area subset of impact investing. I don't want to be a niche of a fringe. Right? At some level, gender affects, in my opinion, every investment on the planet. There is an analysis that is baked in assumptions about the current and the future patterns of gender. There is no investment made, including all of the climate investments, that don't have gender implications. They also have implications in terms of many other kinds of identities because we're human beings. So they also affect religion. They also affect questions of race and ethnicity. They question, all kinds of things come up. And ignoring that is what finance is really, really good at because they're like, no, we don't need, we're not biased. This is just the facts. So our definition of gender lens investing is a process definition as opposed to an outcome definition. And we made a really important choice here. You could make a different choice. There are many definitions of gender lens investing that say that there are they are in that the, the gender lens investment is defined by its intent to create outcomes. You know, so the gender lens investing is about intentionally seeking to create gender equality outcomes. I'm good with that. Here's the challenge. To be able to pay attention to questions of gender and power, you need to change how you do analysis. You need to change the lens that you use to see the world. And so I fear efforts to point capital at women versus to change how we see power in the world. Hence, a process definition to say incorporating a gender analysis into financial decision making to get to better outcomes. 
So that's our operating definition. So it's a process definition, not the outcomes. You could then name what outcomes you wanted out of that process, but it forces you to pay attention to what are we actually changing about what we're doing so that you don't end up with some of my favorite comments of, well, I would invest in a woman, but I can't find any. <laughs> or a report that's about to come out that y'all can see when it comes out that ends with a conclusion that says, any investments with a gender lens are going to have lower returns and be smaller deals. Because, you know, we're not 80, 85% of the purchasing power women. No. We're, an, we're like some niche market off to the side, right? So part of the question, so first question is, that gives you a little bit of a scope of what gender lens investing is. Three other quick things that I want to point to. One is, there is huge momentum behind this. So that comes from a couple different places. One is, you all hear the language of investment, the power of the private sector, people saying, actually, it's private capital that are going to accomplish the SDGs, right? Because we can't get enough money from philanthropy and donors, so we're going to need all this private capital. And anybody who wants to do that, who has then a gender policy behind it, is pushing to say, we're going to do gender lens investing. So most governments out there right now have some kind of gender lens investing strategy. More importantly, though, or differently importantly, um, the private sector. So the wealth transfer, uh, the transfer of assets, you know, so that women are going to be the largest asset holders on the planet soon, um, is driving wealth management firms to say, how do we say to our female clients that we're addressing gender? So to your question about climate and gender, I hear really often from wealth managers and asset managers that they're getting asked for two things. Tell me how I'm addressing climate. Tell me how I'm addressing gender. And increasingly, it's those two together. It would be really great if somebody could up with a climate fund that actually also addressed gender. Then they would like have all the money. So there is a significant momentum behind this, which gets to my next point, which is why you in this room are so desperately needed. There is a significant possibility that all this money could move and not create gender equality outcomes. It could be a whole bunch of tick a box for women on boards. It could be, look, I found a woman entrepreneur. It could be the entire menstrual, you know, the entire sanitary pad industry affects women, so I'm, I count, right? Or I, I, I work on reproductive health and all reproductive health products have a gender lens to them. No, these are not true. Right? So the question of making sure that the genius of the people who have spent decades working on paying attention to getting to gender equality outcomes in the context of development, I truly understand the suspicions that this is all fluff and buster. But it's a lot of money moving. And the question is, how do we make sure that it can get 
to the best possible outcomes. So the final point is to be able to get to the best possible outcomes, we focus on three things. One is paying attention to the underlying analytics. We could point money at women, but have we actually changed how we value women's role and therefore the entire informal economy? Do we change our underlying calculations about whether or not we see informal economies as valuable? So changing the underlying analytics of what people think in finance is valuable. Second, paying attention to power in structures. And this is where donor agencies have just an incredible role, where they can step in and change the structure to ensure that, for example, if somebody is working on a new impact investment and they are trying to have gender equality outcomes from that, don't you think they should have some level of a partnership with some organization that actually knows something about gender in the region? Right? So the question is, how do civil society organizations become part of this? And how do we structure that as a requirement for making investments so that the knowledge and the power is actually changing? We're not just pointing money in a different direction, but changing the underlying power dynamics. The third thing is actually paying attention to the how. Right? So I, Will and I have had lots of conversations about this, but there's this thing about accelerators and pitch festivals, right? Pitch festivals don't work for lots of people. They don't move capital particularly well, but they're a wonderful performance of finance. So everywhere we go, we put investors in the audience and entrepreneurs on the stage and say, look, we're performing finance, even if it doesn't work, even on its own terms. So the question of how do we actually introduce questions of transformation, not just accommodation. I don't want to be taught how to pitch. Um, apparently, I'd probably be pretty good at it. But I don't, want to, I don't want to be taught how to pitch. I want collaboration to be introduced as the value, perhaps more important, and that gets better financial and development outcomes than competition. So thinking about process, thinking about structure, and thinking about the underlying analytics, where you sit, lean into those questions, not in kind of like a lean, she it's just a phrase, she took a book, <laughs> made it more, but think about how do you lean into that, join those conversations, and make sure they're done right. I feel like you could have, like, dropped that mic, right? <laughs> yeah, and you, you would definitely do well in a pitch festival. Um, look, um, where to start with that? Uh, you know, excellent questions from the audience and then this, uh, I, I think, extremely useful and grounding um, reflections from you, Joy. Um, what I actually want to do, this is not pre-scripted, so this is actually um, gender lens improv, I think we decided we would call it. Um, and what I actually want to do, I actually want to start with Sally because she's in the middle, so that feels right. Um, but also, Sally, I feel like you occupy, occupy this um, really interesting position in that you came from having pitched this to DFAT and getting, you know, DFAT on board. Now you're in care. You're not in the private sector, though, and you're clearly a supporter. And so you kind of exist in this in this potentially awkward but also very influential space. And um, 
how are you experiencing this and, and how are you reconciling some of those challenges that we're seeing? And I, I really liked, Joy, your um, transformation, not accommodation. I think that's a really important sort of takeaway for us, particularly given the number of gender experts we have in the room. Sally, you're a gender expert. What are you, what are sort of some, what's triggering for you in this discussion? Well, I mean, for me, you know, I always used to say as a gender specialist that everything's about gender and gender is about everything. And so it's incumbent on us to um, infiltrate, to colonise every aspect of life. And the, you know, as you say, Joy, it's about power and power resides in the private sector, in, in private finance, right, in our world. And if we leave that gender blind, we will be never succeeding in, in gender, in our aims to achieve gender equality. We just won't. We've, really, it's up to us to colonise everything. And, uh, the, you know, capitalism should be, you know, transformed from a, through a gender lens as well. The whole, the whole thing needs to be. So... Um, I came, and, and I, I have to say, I also want to give absolute credit in, in the design of um, in, uh, investing in women to Shah Bowman, who's another DFATA, who's uh, also a very innovative, really innovative thinker. So, uh, you know, it, it, was, it had many mothers. And, uh, <laughs> um, but so it came from the opportunity with a, a government that really cared about private sector development and investing the private sector to leverage funding for aid and development outcomes. Uh, and so we went, well, you know, you, we can apply gender equality to anything and so let's attach it to the Minister's key uh, priorities, which, you know, we did. And I think it was the start of a, a movement across DFAT to, to do this stuff and I was also able to influence, you know, some of the other impact investing and investment programs in DFAT to make sure that they also had a gender lens. Um, because it really shocked me when we were doing the design with, with Jackie DeLacy for investing in women, talking to impact investors across Southeast Asia and seeing that already, at, even at the very inception of this new industry in, in our region, gender gaps were opening up and that women's owned businesses were just not being involved. And, you know, as we know, that's the very first stage in, in introducing a gender lens. It's just the first, though, you know. We, you, you need to start by seeing women and then you need to start by looking at gender equality. So... Um, so that's where I've um, come from and I'm now in care looking to really see if we can partner and bring our gender equality understanding to private sector partnerships. So I'm also on the board of the Global Compact Network in Australia, the um, business-led uh, sustainability and um, SDG um, human rights movement. So using the experience I have from government and the, and the civil society into to moving towards uh, as I say, colonising. We've got to colonise and <laughs> there is no space where gender equality thinking and development thinking shouldn't be uh, infiltrating. Right, okay, so we reclaimed the word colonise. Um, <laughs> I want to take a pause before I ask my next question in case anyone thinks they're connected. Um, Amanda, there was a question about um, at the beginning about, you know, how do we take this this big kind of movement of capital and these big things around investment and actually um, connect those to the women who are most marginalised and who are most removed. And you work with Pacific Rise in the Pacific and kind of one of the truisms we hear about this is impact investing works in Southeast Asia because, you know, the, the, the economy is bigger and there are more, you know, um, uh, investors, but, you know, no one's like... You hear scepticism about the Pacific, but that's where you're working. Mm -hmm. um, 
sort of how are you translating this kind of this this big um, concept into you know it's a, it's a challenging region um, and you know where women are challenged um, and if you've got anything that connects that with climate change as well I didn't prep you before that so if you go I don't know climate change that's fine leave it behind um, but you know what what does this feel like when we take these big concepts about moving you know potentially trillions of dollars and we apply them to women in the Pacific absolutely thank you very much um I guess, uh, as Amy mentioned before, I'm part of Pacific Rise, which is the um, Pacific Readiness for Impact Investment in uh, South, uh, Social Enterprises, so that's why we call it Pacific Rise. Um, so we were established to, I guess, demonstrate how impact investment could look in the Pacific, um, and we partner with impact investment specialists from around the world. Um, and I guess as part of our design, we came in very early thinking about, well, where does gender fit within this? And I guess in my experience, I've worked with a lot of um, private sector development programs and gender's always been kind of the ticker box on the side. It's been the, well, as long as we do no harm, mm -hmm. I think we're okay. Mm -hmm. um, so it was really cool to be part of a design where we said, well, well let's figure out where, where gender can come in at the beginning and across the whole program. Um, so we partnered with uh, Pacific Trade Invest um, Australia and also with the Criterion Institute to really set ourselves up for, you know, what does this mean in the Pacific and, and how can we use that gender lens? And I guess there's a couple of ways, and, and going to Prachi's question around, you know, how do we mainstream this and not just make it about, um, you know, investing in, um, in women entrepreneurs or, or just, uh, um, you know, one little part. So we looked... Um, Firstly, about finding new partners. So as Joy mentioned, there's, there's a huge amount of uh, gender funds out there. There's a lot of, um, you know, on, uh, intermediaries who are actually focusing on gender lens investing. And they were a great network for us. So I think if we hadn't already kind of looked at gender as a way of expanding opportunities, we probably wouldn't have found all these new partners. Um, and so we, we did actually take time to figure out who was moving money um, with the gender focus, who was interested in the Pacific and how to get those two talking. Um, and for example, we work with Impact Investment Exchange in Asia and they've developed a, a women's livelihood bond. So a, a, um, a bond all around um, getting investment into women, into to businesses and to, um, to, I guess, enterprises that, that move money for women. Um, and we've actually got them looking at Fiji, looking at the Pacific and starting to think, well, hang on, where could the Pacific come into this model as well, into an investment bond? Um, I guess in a couple other ways that we use uh, gender lens, we also use it to find sectors that may be undervalued. Um, so using that gender data to understand, I guess, where um, you know, sectors like creative arts within the Pacific, um, menstrual health, some of those sectors where a lot of women participate, um, and particularly in the informal sector, which is a, a big part. And I think every, um, every enterprise, every business that our intermediaries have found all have links to the, the informal economy. And that's a, a huge part, and, and many women are part of that informal economy. So it's really been important for us to, I guess, start looking at what are the types of finance and, you know, maybe private equity coming from, you know, market rate returns aren't appropriate in those instances. What are the types of finance that can work for those businesses um, to actually reach those... those um, those parts of the informal supply chain. 
Um, and I guess an example of that is we worked with an organisation called Real Impact and they have a very different way of looking at creative arts. So where people look at handicrafts, this, this is more around creative arts. So how do we redesign the way we think about it? How do we put that onto a, a global platform? And how do we get entrepreneurs, um, creative arts industries from the Pacific finance in order to build up their businesses so they can then participate to these, you know, think Alibaba type platforms. Um, so they've been partnering with a group called Kiva, which crowdfunds a lot of money and uh, puts money in, they've actually started to act as a Kiva intermediary, specifically to be able to get finance into that informal supply chain. Um, and I guess just as a third point, we also work with gender organisations. So while we've been training finance intermediaries around gender lens investing, the important part on the other side was then to say, well, what about gender organisations and human rights organisations within the Pacific? You know, to be able to get the seat at the table with everyone speaking the same language, how are we going, you know, how do we do that? So um, the three countries where we had the most uh, interest and the most um, visibility, we actually worked with a range of different gender um, human rights organisations and in particular gender-based violence organisations to train them, I guess, to, well, to better value the expertise that they have, to think about them as, as assets, um, and then to, I guess, link them with the organisations we work with. So I guess just as a, a sort of way of, of starting where we're coming from and, and how we've used that gender lens. Terrific. Um, now, my next question is actually a joint question between Will and James, so I'm going to get you guys to psychically figure out who wants to talk first. But you both work, and I'll hand the mic over so you can dueling mics, um, but you both work um, in incubators um, with investors who are learning what this means, who've got, you know, who've been convinced to think this is important but might not be amazingly skilled. And I think it would be useful to hear from, from you about sort of how, what do you see that, what does that trajectory look like? And I think it relates specifically to, again, Joy's, point about um, transformation, not accommodation, but also to the earlier point about when do we move from creating new stuff to actually mainstreaming this? Um, and I think you've got sort of different stories and insights on that, and I, th I think it would be useful to hear that. Sure, maybe um, I can start. So just a, a little bit of background about investing in women. Uh, we started in 2016, and the goal overall is to promote women's economic empowerment. Um, our theme is that, you know, um, Investing in women is not only the right thing to do, it's also the smart thing to do. So we lead by the economic rationale. Um, um, our, our, I guess, manageable interest is working with the private sector, uh, looking at what's their bottom line. Um, there are a number of interventions. One, we work with large corporations, and what I lead is uh, we work with commercial impact um, investors. Um, and so far, we have four impact investors that, that we work with, and some of the key learnings that we're getting about why are they interested in gender lens um, investing. Um, overall, are, are, are three things that stand out. One is um, they see a market opportunity, at least in, in Southeast Asia. They're at the leading forefront. Um, if you look at the impact investing community in any um, sector or, um, um, or even look at, at their website and you look at where they invest in, you, know, you, you hardly see gender at all as, as a drop-down issue. Or, or any kind of investments that are targeting any kind of gender, gender outcomes. And so our partners see this as a huge opportunity in Southeast Asia, and in particular with the growing middle class and the female economy related to that, um, specifically in the Philippines where we're based, 
Indonesia, um, and also um, Vietnam. So that's the, the first area. Uh, they, our partners see this huge untapped market opportunity that no other impact investor um, is really tackling um, strategically. Uh, the, the secondly is, by the nature of being impact investors, these um, investors care more about the uh, profit maximization. Uh, they, they might care about the climate, they might care about education, healthcare, and as a consequence, it's not that far of a leap to say that they'll also care about gender. Um, so there's a, an alignment of what they're trying to do to create the double, triple bottom line with gender lens investing. And our message to them and to the entire impact investing community um, has been, you know, um, if you care about growing the impact investing community, um, if you care about impact overall in the kinds of investments you make, um, to ignore gender um, is a real a big mistake um, overall. And then finally, um, another area of, of growing um, rationale and pain point for these impact investors is that, you know, impact investors are fund managers um, and they respond to their client demands. Uh, so they're usually uh, managing funds on high net worth um, individuals, family foundations, institutional investors, donors like DFAT um, as well. Um, and so they respond to what their, their, their clients are telling them. And up to this point, frankly, uh, we don't think enough of the clients are, are, are directing them um, to, have, to have an intentional gender lens um, um, with specific ways of actually how to do it. Okay. So those are the three ways in which um, um, we, we are at least coming up with um, areas where impact investors are, are, are becoming more and more commercially interested in gender lens investing and actually going above and beyond uh, what we're doing uh, together. Okay. Thanks, James. Um, so I'll, I'll try and take a couple of steps backwards and put our work in uh, frontier incubators in context. Um, but firstly, like most impact investment assets sit in funds and funds that don't really distribute anything under $2 million investments. So we're working at the other end of that spectrum as part of the Scaling Frontier Innovation Program from the Innovation Exchange at DFAT, uh, SFI for short. Uh, SFI is a four-part program kind of working across the uh, enterprise development pathway. Um, for the most part, focused on building generative capacity in local entrepreneurial uh, and investment ecosystems. Uh, so one of those four programs is Frontier Incubators, and this is working with um, business support services, so incubation acceleration programs. Um, as part of that, uh, we're focusing on building the, uh, as you put it, infrastructure in brackets, available to local entrepreneurs to grow their businesses. This is financial and non-financial support because incubators and accelerators often play a, a really critical role in catalyzing the financial support in their respective ecosystems, as well as directly providing non-financial assistance to entrepreneurs. Uh, also, interestingly, based on the, uh, the research that, or the data that we collected through our applications to the Frontier Incubators program, incubators and accelerators are largely staffed by women, interestingly. Um, so as part of the Frontier Incubators program, and uh, where we've just received a small extension on the gender and power work within the Incubators program from Sasakawa Peace Foundation, um, but we're building out a, uh, a set of offerings for uh, incubators and accelerators. So the program itself is a capacity building program for incubators and accelerators, focused on building the quality of the services that they provide to enterprises, but also focused on building the sustainability and the stability of their operations as well, because those two things are inextricably linked. Uh, relationships with mentors, relationships with investors, all of this stuff is, uh, is held by people. 
Um, and people don't stick around if they don't get paid. <laughs> so hence the sustainability or the stability is linked to the quality of services. So as part of the incubators program, uh, uh, gender and power was really a consideration up front. How, uh, how are these uh, organisations marketing their services? How accessible are they to female entrepreneurs, but also to businesses seeking to impact women and children? Uh, how are they engaging local investors? Are they holding pitch days, to your point, Joy, um, and perpetuating really unhelpful power dynamics? Um, and so through the program, I think we have this really interesting opportunity to interrogate the ways in which incubation and acceleration programs do not work for women uh, and the ways in which uh, incubation acceleration programs engage with early stage investor networks as well because like I was saying they play a really critical role in, in developing their ecosystems and a lot of that comes through their work with angel investment networks so the folks that actually do provide investment at that sort of twenty, fifty, hundred thousand dollar mark well under where most of the impact investment assets are sitting in funds um, and so look we're, we're at the beginning of this journey but we are building out, a, uh, with the support from Sasakawa and from DFAT, a gender lens incubation acceleration toolkit, which will support incubation acceleration programs to interrogate these issues themselves, to engage civil service organisations in this practice as well, and to build into the way that they promote, the actual services that they deliver to entrepreneurs, and the way that they engage investors, and, and for some of them also policymakers, um, uh, a consideration of, of gender, uh, gender and power. Fabulous. Now, I'm going to just put two more questions to the panel before I open it up for more questions from the floor. Um, and I, I'm particularly interested to hear from anyone who wants to respond. Um, and Joy, you might have a particular framing for this. Um, there was a question at the beginning about the relationship between gender lens investing and shared value proposition. Um, do you see these things as related, as you know, neighbourly prospects, as unrelated? What? How do you, as, as potentially able to positively influence each other? What's like? How's this sitting for you? Yeah, it's actually I've never gotten that question before, so it's fascinating. Um, I, I do think um, so. In, in my experience, so shared value, to the best of my understanding, um, is looking to figure out how to partner largely with corporates to figure out how do we how do we name the shared values to be able to collaborate more effectively. Um, what happens in any form of corporate engagement, whether it's shared value or or just, you know, CSR in general, corporate social responsibility, is you're looking to understand the logic of corporations to be able to change the policies and practices within a corporation. So where that links to systems of finance, um, but, but I just want to highlight that is the work of figuring out the logic in corporations, right? Who sits where? If you end up with the marketing people, have you really lost, right? How, how far are you from where the money sits? All those kinds of things that make sure that you're doing that practice well. So it is a logical extension to say since many corporations are owned by investors, that finance can also be used to influence companies, right? So that where they're similar is they're saying that the unit of analysis, what you're trying to change, are the practices of businesses, right? And that you're just analyzing the power somewhat different. So if you want to understand what drives finance, you then understand what drives finance. And then here's, here's the tricky bit. What power does finance have to influence the activities of corporations? 
So people pretty often, we have a large campaign right now around gender-based violence. So Criterion is seeking to prove globally that you can use finance to address gender-based violence. And the number one thing that everybody comes to me is, let's have one index that says who the good companies are are gender-based violence and who the bad companies are, and we'll get out of the bad companies and put our money in the good companies. Okay. That's really not, you know, that's hard, right? There isn't like three indicators that say what are the relationships. And so it's hard. And exiting investment money doesn't always change the behavior of companies. Many people would make the opposite argument, stay in a company and use your shareholder power to be able to influence it. So, so part of it is understanding an analysis of power, which by the way, all of you who are gender experts in the room know how to do this because you know how to analyze power. It's just a different system. So the one other thing that finance can do though is, and I'll just, I'll just end, end with this briefly, is Finance not only influences companies, it influences whole markets, right? The internet, the development of the internet and the role that finance played within that was, it really wasn't just, you know, a bunch of entrepreneurs sitting around. It was the people who gave them money and then the people who went and shaped policy to make sure that the entrepreneurs could build the internet, right? It wasn't just a couple companies going, I made this all happen. Um, and so part of the question is thinking about how can finance influence markets, not just influence companies? So back to the gender-based violence example, if we eliminated all sexual harassment and sexual assault that happened inside of companies, we wouldn't have really made a dent on gender-based violence. In general, people tolerate sexual harassment at work less than they do at home. And so the question is, how do we get finance to say gender-based violence in the world is a problem? Gender-based violence, increase of gender-based violence correlates with an increase in political risk, right? How do we get people in finance to say gender-based violence is a problem full stop and therefore can influence how governments act? create political will. So it's a complicated one, and you can debate me on it, Sally. No, I wasn't. Can I just say something? Just to say, I think, you know, we in development know about thinking and working politically, and what we've got to seek to do is understand the landscape that we're trying to influence, understand what the barriers to change are, and understand what people's incentives to change are. And when we're looking at gender equality globally, we can look at it, we do have to look at it at a micro level, whichever forum we're working in, whichever domain we're working in, we need to engage on a gender um, analysis there with a, a politically informed power analysis as well. But the benefit of bringing in investment into the conversation uh, and, and corporates is that you're raising, you're increasing the size of the ecosystem and you're looking at different levers and different incentives and different barriers uh, and you can look at them on a bigger and more macro level. So, um, and how can they influence each other? So, for example, CARE has done some research on the cost of sexual harassment in garment factories in, in the Cambodian garment sector uh, and we've used that to partner with... Um, with corporates around shared value pieces. And it, it, you can start to build uh, that kind... And, and then you use government, right, to drive incentives. So 
Um, the modern slavery legislation that the Australian government passed just at the end of last year is going to be really powerful for driving those incentives. Uh, and so looking at all of the different levers in uh, the world that we're living in in order to remove the, the structural imbalances is really important and I think it is important for us to use uh, to understand the worlds of the people we're trying to influence. And so, as you said, Amanda, the piece about language, we um, development types and gender types don't often know finance. I mean, I always prided myself on understanding business a bit, right, and knowing their language. And then I remember going to the very first Gender Lens Investment uh, talk I heard from um, with, with you, Joy, back in, I think it was Bangkok in 2015, and just going... I don't understand any of this. <laughs> you know, there's a whole new language I need to learn and, and set about learning it because you can't influence if you can't understand the incentives that people that drive other people. Mm. I think what's so important about that point, Sally, is um, once you understand the incentives, you can do analysis to figure out whether using finance as a tool is useful. And I think part of the downside with all of the momentum is like, move private sector capital. Why? Right, to be able to answer the question of what actually is the literal strategy that you're using to move capital and how that will ensure that you're reaching the development outcomes. I think it, it, if you know all the toys, you can then answer the question of which toy is actually useful rather than being handed a toy and say, go do impact investing in the Pacific and make it beautiful. Wow. Um, so I think there's a, there's a point underneath both of those points, which is also, the, I mean, sitting underneath the analytics, a lot is data, right? Um, and if you don't have the evidence, then it's very difficult to, you know, when you're doing your bog standard, um, you know, operating environment analysis for whether this is a good investment. I mean, we've just completely zeroed out any impact on women, right? Um, we, and we can't monetize it because we don't have the data. So um, my next question is going to be actually about monitoring and evaluation, um, which is like a super nerdy set of phrases. So maybe let's not talk about that. Maybe let's just talk about evidence and how do we know that this is working. Um, but I do just want to just um, do a little bit of a shout back to your point again about language. That was my exact experience as well. And Joy sat there with me. She just mentors principal sector specialists at DFAT. <laughs> Holds her hand while we go, holy shit, what was that? Um, but I think, um, and given the preponderance of gender experts in the room, that cuts both ways. And it wasn't until I was sitting in a finance um, conference that I thought, oh, this must be how people sitting in gender conferences feel who aren't gender experts and they don't understand what's happening. And so it's incumbent on both sides of this equation to develop a, a language that lets us talk to each other and to recognise we don't all have to have all the skills, we just need to join them up. So... That's just my, that's Amy's word for the day. Um, but evidence, how do we know this is working? What can, what can we say so far? And, and, you know, what does success look like, short, medium, long term? I'm going to actually throw to James on this first because I know he's thought about this a lot. Oh, sure. Um, just to give you some background about how we work with um, these commercial impact investors, um, we provide them what, with what um, is called um, blended finance investment instruments, um, what that is, is we're, we're underwriting the risk for them to enter a new market. Um, in this case, the new market in Southeast Asia um, is women-owned, women-led businesses. If you look at the data, they are grossly underrepresented uh, within the SME space, but, um, and, and even more so within impact investing, um, surprisingly. 
Um, so that's what um, we were set out to do with the goal to mobilize more capital for women-owned, women-led businesses. Now, um, as a starting point, how we measure success, um, there are uh, three areas. One is, are we de-risking investments um, and are these as a consequence, are these partners making deals? All right. Secondly, are they crowding in private sector capital? So, I mean, it's great that you're underwriting an, um, an investor, but are other people doing the same thing or are they crowding in over time? And then thirdly, you know, um, our pilot initiative with these partners are relatively small. I mean, um, in the millions of dollars, um, small um, compared to the global capital markets. But um, we're a success if after, you know, five years of working together, these partners are actually scaling our initiative across their entire organization, um, across their follow-on funds um, as well. So that, those are the three main areas that we uh, try to judge our, ourselves with as a starting point. And of course, because we work with commercial um, investors who act as champions and who uh, are going across the uh, entire um, conference circuits, more or less, in impact investing, um, they are then championing for us um, why other investors need to be doing um, the same thing. Okay. Can I just say one more thing about that? But um, it's really interesting as a gender person in development. It all, I always used to say that uh, that mainstream development practitioners had sort of developed a bit of scar tissue about gender and they'd sort of just hunker down and let it wash over them and try and ignore it. But um, really, but. Uh, um, it's really with investment, with investors, it's not as if they're actually going, I don't agree with gender equality, I really don't want to do it. That when you raise these issues with them and explain it in a way that works for them, they're actually kind of quite keen, right? And often they will become champions for it. So, you know, they haven't built that scar tissue over decades of, of having, you know, trying to systemically avoid having to do anything about gender and development. So <laughs> <laughs> I guess, I mean, from, from Pacific uh, experience, and when we started out, we really wanted, and we're very early on, I must say that up front, so um, part of what we're trying to do is, is demonstrate what impact investment could look like in the Pacific, and I guess how we, how we would do that with a gender lens, or how, how can a gender lens help to, I guess, make investments more um, better, better for women, uh, more profitable, what are the tools that we can use in order to, I guess, get those finance intermediaries um, thinking more about gender, about a gender lens? So um, so I think, you know, our, our kind of metrics around that are really about changing behaviour. So, you know, providing providing training, providing support, providing our... our, um, our uh, expertise from the Criterion Institute. We call them the gift with purchase. Uh, so, you know, you, you buy us, you, you come in and work with us and we, you also get our Criterion team. Uh, so we um, we actually give all of that expertise to all of the partners that we work with um, and, you know, it, it sort of allows them to explore. And we don't go in there saying, you know, you must know about gender lens investing. We go in with an attitude of, of these are the things we can help you with. Um, and I guess from experience, it's always been when we've talked to the private sector around why they partner with development organisations, and aside from the funding, it really is about expertise. I mean, development expertise and in particular gender expertise. So we never found this to be a very difficult conversation to have with intermediaries and with finance organisations. And the momentum of all the money that's available for, for gender finance, um, that was something that we were able to use. So... 
So by, I guess, bringing out um, intermediaries, training them, um, asking them to use these tools, so it's another set of analysis. Um, finance intermediaries get very excited about new data, um, new analysis that they can do over their investments uh, to figure out if there's any risks or any opportunities that they can explore. Um, so that really fit, really resonated with them, and I think that was that was quite interesting. Our first training, we had a lot of venture capitalists who came in thinking, okay, well, we'll tick this box and we'll get to work with DFAT. But they really came out of it saying, this is something we want to use. And there was a huge number of, well, large, small number of organisations um, that were in that training that have really changed the way they've worked. Um, and I guess using an example from um, the Pacific, because one of those intermediaries worked with a fishing organisation in the Pacific, and that fishing company uh, worked with uh, youth, with, with um, uh, fishermen, bought their entire catch, um, part of that catch then went, um, was on sold to hotels, so it was a high premium products. Um, they only take two varieties of the fish. Um, the rest of those products were then sold to women in the marketplace. So the way that they'd always seen that was that this part of it was very CSR, it was very much a, a social side of their business, um, and that their, the, the growth potential for their business always hinged around um, you know, the, the profitability, the expansion of hotels and, and that, that side of it. But when these intermediaries came in and used the gender lens, they actually found the biggest growth potential was in the, the, the women in the marketplace who were buying up to 80% of the catch. Um, and that was not just CSR. In fact, that's the reason why they actually went forward with an investment plan into that business the way they would have walked away ordinarily is that they found this entire... Um, market that was completely undervalued and underserved. So, so I think for us um, around that m &E question is it's about, um, I guess, getting examples of where this has worked, um, really using that evidence to, I guess, you know, share amongst the community, which is one of the reasons why we kind of um, thought it was a good idea to actually start talking in these spaces. And, um, and yeah, so... Um, so I actually really love these examples because they look at the, the sort of process metrics of if you give money to these intermediaries, are they investors? Are they changing their practices? Um, and I think it's really powerful. I, I will add, though, Criterion just finished a partnership. Well, we just finished the first phase of a partnership with the Global Impact Investing Network, um, which is the GIN for short. Um, which is the largest network of impact investors. Um, after, I think they've been in business for 10 years, I am somehow ashamed but happy at the same time to say that they finally have gendered metrics. So we um, just, they just went live about a month ago. And so from the end outcome, right, because this is assuming that if they're doing these processes right, that the impact in the end will happen um, and the debates about impact investing and and what measure, what outcomes you can actually attribute to the investment are massive. Um, but we sort of did our part to try to come up with a concrete set of metrics, both internally and then across three different sectors that would at least get the conversation started. ICRW also has some pretty amazing tools that are coming out. So it's taken a long time. I would say for 10 years, people have been asking the question of how do we do metrics in gender lens investing. Um, it's a massive question though, right? Metrics in what sector? Like, well, just tell me the three things I should pay attention to. No, 
not going to tell you three things to pay attention to. It's never going to be that simple. Um, and so I think the gen metrics are a good example of what's out there right now. Just chiming in from the incubator accelerator side, I think there is two main metrics that we'll be looking at for the gender lens incubation acceleration work. And I mean, these came up earlier in conversation with you, James. Um, and, and I think the, one of them is cohort numbers. So the numbers of women-led, women-focused enterprises coming into the incubation acceleration program. And the other is investment numbers. And unfortunately, the, the painful story is at the latter end of that. So it doesn't really matter if you, uh, equate, you get to, to equity in cohort numbers. At the end of the day, the women enterprises graduating from these incubation acceleration programs will not get the same sort of investment. Uh, so those will be the two things that we're looking at. Uh, and we have to focus on the support for incubators and accelerators to engage early stage investors with the aim of trying to shift the outcomes at the end of these programs. Um, and the other things we'll be looking at are the quality and fit of the services provided um, and the gender analyses and gender strategies developed for cohort businesses as well. So. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. Just, um, you know, we talk about the missing middle where impact investing plays in, in, a, in a sense because there's commercial lending which is running by itself and then there's microfinance and micro lending down the bottom and, you know, the, the kind of playing field for impact investing is largely in the middle between those things. Uh, and often investors, I, I think, tell me if, I, if you agree, often the easiest thing for an investor to do is to just reach down into the top of that missing middle because, you know, you've got the same kind of um, governance arrangements. It's much easier for the organisation that's seeking finance from you to comply with the requirements that you've got. It's much harder to reach down to the top, to the very bottom of the missing middle because people there, are, you know, much more micro enterprises haven't got the same kind of capacity for due diligence approaches, haven't, um, you know, got quite the same metrics maybe in terms of returns as well. And so sometimes that's part of the problem. And so the task for us is to find ways of providing incentives to investors to both recognise the value of, of, of reaching further down to the bottom of the missing middle uh, and that there's maybe different ways of approaching this whole business in, investment process by maybe congregating or aggregating um, businesses together or seeing different ways of measuring value, for example, um, or providing incentives as investing is in women is doing to, to kind of um, take off some of the risk from, from doing that. So I, I wonder if there's, if others who know more about this than I do have some thoughts on whether, you know, there's ways that we can both build incentives for that and measure it better? I, I can't talk to the incentive space I and mean, we're not investor facing, but the other way to address the missing middle is by addressing infrastructure, as we called it. So the, the support services that are available, and that's on the financial and the non-financial side. So building the quality of incubation acceleration services is, is one of those, right? At the end of the day, you're, you're lift, ideally lifting the missing middle. But on the incentive side, James? Sure, I can uh, talk a little bit about that. So um, if you speak with impact investors and you ask them, what's their sweet spot in terms of investments? Um, you know, what's the size of their investment fund have to be for them to actually um, be profitable? And what's the ticket size? What's the investment size uh, for their um, investees? Um, they'll say that roughly um, they have to raise around $35 million um, and that the investment size is roughly around $1 to $2 million that they have to deploy. Now, if you're making investments into small enterprises where... Uh, small enterprises need around maybe 100000 to $250,000. The transaction cost of getting that deal to close is the same as getting a, a 2 to $5 million close. Um, and so 
Um, that's the challenge, and um, that's where I think a lot of donors have to really um, chime in if we're going to really tackle the, the missing of the missing middle. Okay. <laughs> yes, and. I, that's one kind of money. I think part of the challenge is, you know, that, that's the traditional U.S. version of impact investors are largely, um, you know, Lar you know, venture debt and equity investors who are looking for a certain kind of high growth business. And I think part of the, you know, you and I have had lots of conversations about this, but part of the challenge is how do we look at all the toys and not just get stuck with the one that is shiny and sexy, which largely looks a lot like venture capital? Right? There's a whole bunch of really boring kinds of factoring and trade finance that's like mind-numbingly boring and doesn't create poster childs of growth, poster children. There's no children of big signs. It's, it's much more granular, but it is most of finance. But it's not as sexy. So I think part of the challenge is how do we keep all the toys at play and not just say, well, here's an impact investor. They have this kind of money, so we have to find things that look like what they want. Let's go find other kinds of money, because there are other kinds of money that work in different markets. Okay, we can have this debate for a long time. Joy. Okay. Um, now, now, Joy, I want to get you to hand that microphone across to Trisha. Oh, there we go. Um, I'm going to open it up out for questions again. I think we've got... Um, about 20 minutes for, for questions. We've just heard a lot, and I find that every time I spend time having this conversation, I go away saying, I want to work in a bank when I grow up. Um, but you might not have reached that point yet. So if you've got questions or you're going, I don't understand what you're talking about, or this just sounds like crap to me, um, you know, challenge the panel. They clearly like talking. Um, <laughs> and there's a lot of expertise here, so let's, let's use that. Jackie DeLacy is going to go first. <laughs> This is a question for you, Amy. So it's Jackie DeLacy from Apt Associates. If Australia is at the forefront of this, how are you learning across all of those investments and how do you share that learning more comprehensively? You have to be lucky to sit in a panel like mm. this. So what can we do to help you document that learning and share it more systematically? I feel like this is a Dorothy Dixer for me to say, check out the Investing in Women website. Is that the right answer? No, no, it's not. Because I think investing in women, we've got some learnings yeah. there, but you've got learnings. I mean, when, when Joy says Australia is a leader in this and DFAT is a leader in this, it's beyond investing in women. I think that's one of your leadership programs. But I think you've got to be investing in sort of comparative, yeah. you know, lessons. Because uh, there's so much rich information. And if Joy's right and you need to start thinking about other forms of capital... Surely some of the ways in which you're trying to, you know, have systematic change, you can take some of those lessons and apply it to the next generation of projects. So it's a little bit about how you learn across the different programs. Yeah, look, in all seriousness, that is a very good question. And um, it does surface a conversation we're having internally, which is that we do actually have work to do on this in, in the department um, in sort of pulling these pieces together. And it's challenging because some of it's been organic um, and it has happened at different sort of levels across the, across the system. Um, and, you know, I think... I'm on YouTube, so I've got to be careful what I say here. But I think we're sometimes a little bit challenged in taking credit for where we're at. And so that means that sometimes we can be backfooted in putting that story out there. And we need to actually take the time to do that. Um, I think 
internally, you know, as bureaucrats, I think there's a lot of enthusiasm and, and in terms of actually take it. What this is is one of those gender conversations where we don't have to be defensive. That's actually what I like about it. So you can go into a conversation and say, this is not just about risk management. This is about potential and innovation and actually being at the front. And isn't that great for, you know, Brand Australia? Um, so that, that conversation is definitely happening. I think we need to do more, though, to see what can we do to, like, to, to contribute to the, um, you know, to the knowledge that's out there. And I think one of the things I'm interested in doing is connecting more with the domestic conversation on gender lens investing, which I haven't been hugely connected with. Um, so I think that's the next, the next step for us as well. But that's a good reminder for me to do more work on this. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, there's a question yes, just here uh, and then up the back yeah. as well. The Sita Giri uh, with the Humanitarian Advisory Group. Um, I have been working primarily as a practitioner for the past 20 years, mainly in South Asia, Southeast Asia as well. And uh, the speakers, all of you talked about gender mainstreaming. And uh, during my work, uh, working with communities, working on program design, two challenges that I faced often, and it goes on and on, one is the targeting, what is the right targeting, and you talked about uh, process kind of um, monitoring. And the other is culture. Uh, I'm just back from Pakistan and uh, uh, working on a basically inception, helping with the inception phase of a program uh, for the five tribal districts which have been merged now to the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province. And uh, we were looking at, as we were designing this new program, we are in the inception of this new kind of a five-year program, you're looking at the immediate response, what were some of the lessons learned after the returnees? Because this five district also has about five million population, returning population that came after the conflict. And one of the lessons learned from the program that have been uh, evaluating or who have implemented is the targeting was very ambitious, we, the pro activities could not be completed and we couldn't do this. We need to have incremental approach in target setting to be able to achieve. While of course, practically this sounds, yes, it's good, but then if we keep on doing this incremental approach, when will we reach there? When are we going to reach the gender parity? Because the benchmark keeps moving. So when, when, when are we going to hit that? The second culture, we always use, no, this program has to be culturally sensitive. Is this activity culturally sensitive? And we end up having the same vocational skill design tailoring for women, uh, cooking, uh, saloon, beauty, beautician training. We never think out of the box because we always say, okay, this has to be culturally sensitive. And that becomes like, a, it's used as an excuse actually to do something different. If we don't address these issues, we will keep on facing the same problem. I would like to hear from the speakers here if you had similar experiences or you may have uh, kind of some lessons or something to share. It would be very useful to listen to you or maybe from the uh, participants here as well. Thank you. Um, what I might do, Tricia, is just take the question up behind you, the lady with her hand up, and then it's, I can get the panel to sort of talk about all of the questions at once. So thank you, everybody. Um, I want to call out Joy because she's abandoned us. Uh, she's been meaning to teach us more or, or explain this more to us since last June and she hasn't followed through on a promise. <laughs> promise breaker. So, <laughs> so, so, but I do, I, 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 I'm Tulika, I work with Women's Fund Asia and I am trying to understand when we're talking about gender lens investing, what, what is different from what 15 years ago or 20 years ago when BRAC came in and started talking about self-help groups or, or making women entrepreneurs by giving them the mobile phones, 
and setting up base cells, somehow giving them some ability to control the resources they were able to earn and recognizing women's work, right? So how does gender lens impact investment, impact investing or the other way? What does it look like now? What is so principally different or normatively different that we're doing? Because uh, just to speak to you, Will, when you talked about the cohorts and the women-focused, women-led, but we're still not talking about the practice of the cohort, what's happening within the cohort. And particularly given that, you know, coming from an experience of SRGs in India, where women collectives were built by banks to, have, to, do, the, to do the sharing and some kind of loaning, and when the loans were taken by women in their name and were used by the family, and when the women were unable to return, return the loans and public shaming was done, and we've had women's suicides because of that. So how do we look at this piece of investment or money as a tool to forward social justice? Or is there an intersectional connection? And if we could just have more clarity around that. This is a very high-pressure panel, so I'm going to hand the microphone over. Um, yeah, so I, I think both of these both of the comments, I, I think, go well together. Um, and I, I mean, look, I, gender lens investing could look like one massive exercise in pinkwashing and accommodation, right? We created some daycare centers attached to an incubation program so that women could drop their kids off where they came to the same crap place that still doesn't actually address whether or not they can speak in the room. Um, and so, so I, I do think there is, and, and I am, I take accountability, I hold some accountability for where the field is at and I am alarmed, I will say. Um, because, and, but for me it's not, right now I think, and this is what I was thinking when you were talking, um, that it's a problem of imagination. I don't know if it's a problem of metrics. And that's where we often go first. How do we make sure that they do what we asked them to do? I think we have to ask first, are we actually doing the right thing? Are we pushing far enough? Um, so I see all the time, and this is where we, we have a broad program called the Power of Policy, which is literally looking at all of the um, donor governments in, in the world and saying, are they doing everything they can to hold the bar as high as possible, right? Or are we saying, well, the private sector said we couldn't do that because that's too hard for them, so we could only ask them to do this. And so part of the question is, are we asking for enough, which means not just, you know, shut down your businesses and go broke, but a kind of imagination that says, here's what we could do if we rethought things. So. Um, we're working on, we, we have an ongoing dialogue with a set of very large asset holders, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, about what would be a future. How would you invest if you believed that in 10 years, gender-based violence could be cut in half? How would you invest today? Where would you put your money if you believed that in the next 10 years, gender-based violence could be cut in half? And 
you were there, right? You guys were in AVPN where that guy stood up and said, I tell the story all this time. This guy stood up. We were at AVPN. Right? You guys were there, weren't they? And he looks at me and he says, well, Joy, don't you think that's a little Pollyanna? And I, I lost it. <laughs> I was like, so Elon Musk gets to say that we're going to live on Mars and I think we're not going to beat the crap out of people and I'm Pollyanna. So part of it is we have to make the conversation harder. We have to make what we're asking for. I'm not saying go out and demand that finance people do something that they can't do, but we need to have a bigger imagination about what's possible. And I'm afraid if we don't have that, we're going to be stuck in the incrementalism. I will say at the same time, I celebrate the incrementalism and 85, you know, there's now what... Um, $100 billion or something, some relatively large amount of money that's invested that screens for women on boards. I want to celebrate that. I don't want anybody to keep telling me that women on boards is what we have to do to achieve gender equality because it's not, right? So how do we get to a little higher bar, but we have to join the conversation to figure out what that higher bar is, and if we're not there at the front end, it doesn't work. I just add, look, I absolutely agree with you and was going to say many of the same things. But I think one of the things is that we need to remember that we who are seeking change are part of the ecosystem ourselves. And, you know, it's a, a failure of imagination uh, sometimes on our part, but it's, we've also got to remember that it's a failure of will on the part of the people we're seeking to influence, right? And we know that. It's the same wherever we work, whatever domain we're working in. Uh, you know, people do think that, you know, women are putting a couple of women on the boards near enough, you know, consulting with a couple of chicks, that's fine, you know. Like, what do they want? And, uh, you know, we know that these are just the tiny steps forward. Uh, and so you've got to recognise your own place and your own power in it. And sometimes it's true that that those who are seeking social justice don't have those levers available to them. And then we must accept small steps, right? Baby steps sometimes is all we can hope for. But um, you've got to know when your power's coming in as well. And I do think that now there is a, a moment for for social justice and for gender equality. And when we were in, in uh, DFAT and we were, you know, we had a minister who was really keen. She really believed that she wanted to see gender equality integrated through the work of foreign affairs. And I would say to, you know, my gang, you know, we need to be really bold here and we need to ask for more, we need to expect more. And I said, and we're even up to the stage where we can mock people for doing badly on gender equality, you know. Like, laughing at people is when you've got, the, when you've got a little bit of um, influence is actually a really powerful thing to do. Um, they don't like you for it, and, but it works. And, uh, <laughs> um, and I think, you know, when you know you've got the influence, take it as far as you can go. And, you know, I think that the, the points you raised about, about are we being bold enough, you know, why are we just um, settling for incrementalism? They apply for whatever aspect of work we're, we're trying to influence, you know. So um, it's always good to remember that we've got our own place in this and to assess what power we do and influence and leverage we do have and use it, take it as far as you can. I think the other part of that, I'm going to join the panel for this second, um, I think there's also a moment right now for accountability 
the 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 period of handing out cookies for people who acknowledged a basic issue that's done we're done with that now you don't just get to wear a lapel pin and say that you've created change so i think there's and what and that means that the people who can pull those levers and that includes you know governments and donors and people moving big amounts of money in in partnership with the private sector need to have an understanding about what an accountability actually looks like and be prepared to put that on the table and so we need to learn that but um we can really see that happening and i think um you know that bar of I have a lapel pin. Can I have a cookie now? That you know, we need to move beyond that. And I think I think we're I think we're there. Um, there was a question though about um, gender lens investing, you know, versus those um, or complementing or the, is it a continuation of or do they sit in parallel? You know, all of that stuff around women's economic empowerment, those micro enterprise, um, financial access, um, financial empowerment type things that we were doing, you know, ten and twenty years ago. How are these related? Are they? Is this a rebranding exercise, or is this a, a different thing, or are these kind of complementary movements that are happening? Anyone can take that question. Look, I, I think that the, the, many of the learnings are the same. You know, many of the techniques and skills are the same. Um, but but we again got to look at where the investment's coming from, what drives the investors. Uh, you know again, what's, what's in their interest to make things different. And there are slight differences. A lot of, you know, microfinance and microcredit was done, um, it was revolving, but it wasn't for profit, really. And so the incentives were different and... For, yeah, well, it, it became commercialised, didn't it? You know, in the end, yeah. But it, but it started out, really, as a, as a kind of a development-led approach and now we're seeing it, it moving along. And so in that sense, I think it becomes part of the, of the um, impact investing scene, right? Yeah. To the extent that it's commercialised, it is. Well, and, and I, think, I think the broader question is just, again, I'll keep saying all the toys and don't get stuck on one kind of capital because then we're, we're meeting the needs of the capital, not saying what does the world actually need and can capital be useful? And if we stop asking that question, then we are, we are sure that we're not going to achieve gender equality because we're simply catering to the money. Sure, we're um, approaching time, but I have one last question down the front here. Uh, Paul Bird from AVI. I just wanted a couple of things. Uh, one is uh, you talked about shared value. Apparently there's a brilliant speaker on 5H tomorrow that will give a presentation on shared value, so I'd encourage everyone to come to that. <laughs> uh, if you're not there, uh, I'll know. Um, the other one is I um, uh, would love to know your experience around in what you, each of you are doing is what's the ripple effect in country? So a good example is we've done a, a business incubator with Intrepid Travel in, in Myanmar, and a lot of the change was trying to get the major banks to appreciate a small business and women's business. And it took us 18 months to get one of the top four banks to agree, a, a lot of work. I, I just want to know your reflection on that. How do you kind of get that change, sustainable change going, rather than having a kind of program that comes in, it ends, who knows what's left at the end? So how do you achieve that sustainable on the ground um, gender change? <laughs> I'm happy to chime in just quickly. Uh, look, I, I think it's, it's, it is too early for us to say uh, with the incubators program, but we are connecting with existing incubators and accelerators, right? We're not setting them up. Uh, and we are not just connecting with them, but we are then connecting them 
And so practices that Wan in Myanmar, for example, has with engaging local financial institutions and working out how to de-risk or kind of uh, advocate and, and bring them into investments in SMEs, that's a piece of learning that we can then transfer to someone active in Cambodia, et cetera, et cetera. And so we have, through the incubators program, begun that process. Uh, but I think it's, it is too early for us to say. Um, so at least in Southeast Asia with, with our work, I mean, prior to the program um, being in operation, um, there were hardly any impact investments into women-owned, women-led businesses. So by the fact that our partners are intentionally doing that, they're providing an incredible demonstration effect that is rippling across the entire um, ecosystem um, and the region um, overall. Now, over time, we'll be, we'll be um, tracking that to see how they're doing vis-a-vis -vis other SMEs uh, that they're um, in, investing in. But that's pretty powerful because um, investors are like bankers. They're always sitting on the fence, and then one person makes one deal, and then the floodgates open. And so that's what we're seeing in Southeast Asia. So. Um, I guess from the, the Pacific side, um, I guess the, the demonstration is, is kind of what we're there for. So we are there to, I guess, show what impact investment could look like in the Pacific. And it's, it's not, in fact, mostly not going to be those private equity big investments. Um, it's using local capital. It's using local banks and figuring out a way that you can partner um, other forms of, of finance uh, to leverage some of those um, local capitals. Like, for example, where we, we're working with um, a Sydney-based organisation, Good Return, and they use private ancillary funding um, from foundations to underwrite um, bank loans from private, uh, sorry, from Pacific banks to businesses that have a very strong gender supply chain. So they have a, a, um, a business and their informal supply chain is primarily um, women and they do a lot of gender analysis around that. So it's proving that there is, um, there, there is the, I guess, potential or profitability within that model, working with those banks to understand what that can look like um, and then showing that across the Pacific. Um, I guess on the other side around the gender lens investing is working with Pacific organisations. So when we sent out a lot of intermediaries to say, use gender data, use gender research, they really didn't find enough um, to inform what they were doing. A lot of it was backwards looking, a lot of it didn't really understand the culture. So um, we found partnering them with actual organisations on the ground is, is one of the best ways to actually inform what they're doing. So. Um, so that's just the, the initial couple of, of examples I would have. I was just going to say, I absolutely agree. I think, you know, people follow money, people follow winners, and the demonstration effect is absolutely the first thing that we need to, to follow. But um, I also think it's not to be underestimated that there's an element of cool in all of this as well, you know. People want to be at the, at the top table with the, with the big guys, you know. And if, if the cool companies are doing it and making money out of it, everybody else wants to do it too. And uh, I think that we need to sort of do that crowding in and making it, people realise that this is where the cool money is. <laughs> so I'll go back to the last piece, which is so changing the underlying analytics of how finance assigns value, changing what structures they're using, changing their underlying processes. I actually think you can structurally change how finance works. So the reason I'm qualified to work in finance is I have a PhD in 19th century American history. <laughs> and so I can tell you the date we made this crap up because we actually made up how these systems work and so we can change how they work. And in the end, that's the sustainable change to actually have the systems function in a different way.
On that super profound note, I'm going to call us to a close. Um, thank you so much for being an excellent um, and super accountable audience. And um, thank you to our amazing panel. Um, this has been super helpful and um, good luck with the rest of the conference. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.